Well, good morning. Thank you so much for downloading the Faith Life Podcast of Discovery Fellowship Church. This is Pastor Nathan here, and this podcast today is our sermon podcast. So every week we go through after the sermon and post it here on our podcast feed so that in case you missed it, you can get all caught up. In addition, if you check the description for this podcast, you will see some discussion questions that you can use to take what you've learned from the sermon and put it into practice into your life. So don't forget to check that out. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email podcast at dfchurch.com. And if you'd like to support the ministry of Discovery Fellowship Church, please visit dfchurch.com for more information. Now here's the sermon. Welcome to each one of you that are here in the room this morning. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online this morning as well. As you can see from the big screens, we are still in the book of Philippians. Um, We are better together. We're going to be back again in Philippians chapter 4. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to find that text. And uh, as you do that, let me uh, just commit ourselves and our time uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as we prepare to study his words together. Would you pray with me? And so, Father, we, um, we come before you once again this morning, having lift up, lifted up our voices. We are preparing our hearts to celebrate the advent of your Son in his first coming. Uh, this morning we have sung, O come thou long-expected Jesus. We've sung about the angels uh, rejoicing over the newborn King. We have sung and acknowledged that you are holy forever. Great truths, Lord, that resonate um, with our spirits as we sing in worship of who you are and what you have done for us. We're grateful and we're thankful that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed your heart uh, to us in words, uh, even that are on a page, uh, and yet they're not simply uh, sterile and preserved words. They are the words of life alive and living and active, and so that we, we ask, Lord, that you would, would bring them to life in us, at least in our hearts. May our spirits uh, resonate with yours, and then, Lord, may we have the courage, the conviction, the wherewithal uh, to bring ourselves into conformity to what you have revealed. And uh, we just ask this in, in accordance with the will and the good purposes and the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. All right, let's just dive right in this morning, okay? As I mentioned to you last week in our study time together, um, as you turn the corner from chapter 3 of the book of Philippians into chapter 4, you find the Apostle Paul here getting very practical as he tries to communicate to these uh, first century Christians living in the city of Philippi. And as God wants to communicate to us in the 21st century, uh, in the same way, really. He wants to communicate just how it is that we are supposed to, as he says, uh, be united and standing firm together for the sake of the good news of the gospel. Because really that is the overriding, overarching point of his letter. And since that's the case, um, what are our marching orders, as it were? Well, last week, if you remember, if you were here, he said basically two of four essential things. Number one, he said, y'all have got to figure out a way to live in harmony with one another. And he, he talked about how it was that we needed to go about 
making that happen. And by the way, keep in mind that he's not just talking about a local church here. Uh, He's talking about our relationships in the body of Christ. In all of life as believers in Jesus as we engage with one another both inside and outside of the church. So, number one, therefore, he admonishes, don't tolerate offenses and dissonance and discord and conflict and interpersonal tensions in your relationships with others in the body of Christ. And number two, remember he said in verses 4 through 5 that you've got to adopt an attitude of forbearance with one another. It's an attitude which says, this guy or that gal may just rub me the wrong way, or they irritate me, or they are an EGR, extra grace required kind of a person, well if so, then actually, Paul admonishes you should praise the Lord for that. Because what that does is it just gives me another opportunity to demonstrate the love and the grace of God, and what that really looks like. It gives me a divinely appointed opportunity to act like Jesus would act. It gives me an opportunity to set aside my rights to be fussy or picky or negative about some other person. That's forbearing. Now this morning I want to continue on with Paul's train of thought here. But really I only want us to just consider a small appetizer of what it is that he has to say in this regard. And then we'll hopefully come back next week if Jesus hasn't come back in the meantime, and we'll get the full meal that we can kind of chew on together. First, though, let's look at what Paul says next in chapter 4, verse 6. And, as you'll notice, it has to do with prayer. But what I think you'll see is it's really actually a lot more than that. Verses 6 and 7. There he writes, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now if you're keeping track, the third mark of a steadfast and united group of believers or a steadfast and maturing disciple of Jesus Christ is their willingness to pray with gratitude. But I'll tell you what, uh, the beauty and the depth of these, I think, probably very familiar to you verses is really only seen when you understand how the Apostle Paul originally said what he had to say here. What I want us to notice are three different characteristics about these two verses. Notice, first of all, if you will, the vivid contrast that Paul sets up at the beginning of verse 6. Here is how the verse reads literally. And you don't need to be a Greek scholar in order to be able to grasp this. You can get this from any good interlinear uh, Greek-English Bible, even if you don't read Greek. Um, It's literally transliterated from Greek to English this way. And it says, nothing be anxious about, but in everything pray. In nothing be anxious, but in everything pray pray. Obviously, the vivid contrast here is between anxiety or worry and prayer. And the way Paul sets this up, what he is effectively saying is that uh, if as believers, and by that I mean you and me, if we 
or if you choose to worry, then in effect, you are not really praying in accordance with the way the Lord would want you to pray. And if you're not really praying, then in effect, you have chosen to worry. Now, I suppose um, it would be helpful here if we could define the terms just a little bit, because the truth is, um, I have rarely known anyone in my life, including me, who does not worry. I've only met a very few believers whose very first response to life's tough stuff that comes their way is to immediately and seriously get after prayer rather than hand-wringing. Now, why do you suppose that that is? Well, it's just natural, right? It's, um, It's a part of our human condition. It seems to me that in life, we tend to worry about about two basic categories of things. On the one hand, we often fret and worry and are anxious about the things that we cannot adequately really control and that we are afraid will happen to us or someone else or something that we care about. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our lack of jobs, our safety, our health, Our financial security, we worry about our kids and our grandkids and how they're going to turn out. We worry, worry, worry about the things that we can't control or are afraid of. It's basically internalized fear. On the other hand, or secondly, we also tend to worry about the things that we want to happen. We worry about whether or not we can make a lot of money or whether or not we can succeed at our job or in this relationship, or whether we'll have the possessions or the comforts or the security that I want. We worry about whether I will be in control or have influence in something. That seems very natural, right? We worry about the things we fear, or we worry about the things that we want. But you know, it's interesting. When you read about worry in the Scriptures all throughout God's word, worry is never, in the scriptures, put in a favorable light. God never says, Rick, it's good that you worry because it shows me that you really care. He doesn't say, boy, it's cool that you're a worrier. Somebody needs to have some concern and some passion about what might happen. Blessed are the worriers, for theirs shall be the crown of life. I haven't found that. If you were to turn over to Matthew chapter 6, which I won't encourage you to do this morning for the sake of time, you'll find there in that familiar passage that the Lord Jesus says in no uncertain terms that worry is part of an ungodly lifestyle. It's something that we should not do. That means it's a sin. It is something actually that is contrary to the character of God. And here's the reason why this matters. Not not only is it because it is contrary to the character and the nature of God, God doesn't worry, and we're supposed to be imitating Him. But secondly, and more particularly to us, worry demonstrates a lack of faith in the someone who can take care of the thing or take care of us in the midst of the thing that we're worried about. In other words, it is a lack of faith. It pushes trust and it pushes contentment 
and it pushes dependent living out the back door. Now here is what I think the Apostle Paul by the Spirit is saying. Anxiousness should drive us to prayer. But prayer should drive anxiousness from us. Anxiety, worry, fretfulness is a signal to pray. The second thing I want us to notice about these verses is that there is a particular solution to the phenomenon of worry that so many of us, I dare say all of us, to one degree or another deal with. It's not only prayer, but it is a particular kind of prayer. Notice the second part of verse 6, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And again, there is a beautiful way in which the Apostle Paul says this. He actually uses the the grammatical preposition toward. He says, let your requests be directed toward God. In other words, the Apostle Paul realizes that when we are tempted towards, or when we are in the midst of worry and anxiety, our focus in life is very horizontal. We worry about what might happen. We worry about what we can do or will do. We worry about how in the world we're going to be able to take care of things. Paul says, instead of that, lift your gaze up. Lift this thing up toward God. Your focus has been towards handling the situation or toward what might happen. Instead, he says, let it be toward God. You know, over the years, I have heard um, some well-meaning Bible teachers spout the platitude and, and say on occasion, and perhaps you've heard it as well, that God will never give you more in life than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? Well, that sounds good, right? And reassuring. That might even make for a nice bumper sticker. God will not give you more than you can handle. God is my co-pilot. Well, the problem is, not only does that not resonate with our experience, think about it, because I think most, some of us, at least, and perhaps many of us, have had at times to deal with more than we can handle at one time or another. For many of us, many times. The reality, folks, is that oftentimes God is giving us more than we can handle so that we can turn towards him and say, Lord, I can't handle this. Please help me. Frankly, if we could handle it all the time, all by ourselves, then God would be practically irrelevant. And God is never irrelevant or distant or disengaged or disinterested or unable to come alongside and help us in our time of need. God says, when you are tempted to worry, that's a signal to pray. And when you pray, make thanksgiving a hallmark of your prayers. Now, I understand full well that that is counterintuitive, but it's biblical to pray Lord, thank you that I have lost my job. Thank you, Lord, that my kids are giving me a fit and they are rebelling. Thank you that you're allowing me, Lord, 
to experience the thorn of cancer. Thank you, Lord, that my marriage is struggling and is deconstructing. Thank you, Lord, that I have been caught in this sin. Thank you, Lord, that my dad has Alzheimer's. Now, it seems to me that the only way you can do that, I mean, unless you are completely detached and a total psychotic or masochist, is if you are somebody who really does believe that the Lord loves you and that he is there and he knows exactly what's going on and he is ultimately in, in control of your seemingly out of control life. You see, thanks directs your attention back up to God. Nobody asks for cancer. Nobody wants their kids to rebel. Nobody invites tragedy into their lives. And you're not expressing thanks for the trauma, per se. But you are expressing thanks toward God in the midst of your trauma as a recognition that you've got someone in your life who is not at all surprised about your circumstances and who is ready and who is able to do what needs to be done in your best interest. In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be pros in Greek, channeled towards God. The third observation about these verses is this. There is a result that we can expect, because this is God's word, if we're willing to do that. If we're willing to do that risky, counterintuitive, faith-exercising, thankful thing. You see it in verse 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Man, is that not a phrase that lets you know that the Apostle Paul knows exactly you know, where we are living? What, what I mean is, when we are in the middle of it, you know, we want to know why, right? We want to know when. We want to know how. We want to understand. And God says, you don't really need to know. You don't need to understand or comprehend. What you need is the peace that comes from trust. You don't need to know in order to have peace. But what you need to do in order to have peace is to trust. What God is saying is in the midst of your temptation to worry, to fret, to be consumed with anxiety and to be all balled up, in the middle of that, you focus your attention up to God and you thank Him for the learning opportunity and intentionally you are placing the outcome in His hands. God promises in verse 7 that His peace will literally... Foreo in Greek, stand as a sentinel around your heart and stand as a sentinel around your mind. Stand as a, as a security guard, if you will. Now, I'd like to flesh this out a little bit more over uh, the next week or two as we gather together. But I'll just kind of wrap it up with this illustration, if I could, this morning. Uh, Corey Ten Boom who many of you know, was a Dutch Jewish woman and who, as a young girl living 
in the, the Netherlands was rounded up uh, by the Nazi regime during uh, the early stages of World War II, and she was placed in a concentration camp. She saw her father and her sister Betsy uh, die in her camp. She saw many of her Jewish um, neighbors and relatives brutalized by the Nazis. She came to know Jesus Christ personally as a result of the horrors of that experience. She recalled that somebody in her camp had once said this to her. When I am anxious and filled with worry, I go to the mirror and I say to myself out loud, this problem is overwhelming. It's beyond a solution. It's too much for me. And not only that, it is especially too hard for Jesus Christ to handle. And after I have seen myself say that out loud, I smile and I am ashamed and I am thankful once again. I think that when it comes to our lives, to our trials, to our difficult circumstances that inspire us to worry, the reason we worry is because in the first place, we are not thankful that God has allowed it into our lives for his greater and his sovereign purposes. And secondly, we fail to appreciate that he wants to use it for growing us in the likeness of his son, spiritual formation and transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And thirdly, when we pray, we really don't trust oftentimes that God is going to handle it, or that he'll handle it in a way or in a timing that perhaps we want. Well, if we understand his word correctly, then what we need to understand is that the Lord God does not promise his kids that we will be exempt from hardship in life. He doesn't promise us that we won't suffer the consequences of some of the poor choices that we've made. He doesn't say that we will be rescued from everything that might cause us to be anxious and worry in this life. What he says in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, is that if we'll come to him with hearts of gratitude for his activity in our lives, in the midst of those trials, what he promises us is peace. And peace is that settledness of conviction that God is in control, that his timing is perfect, that his ways are right, and that the very best possible place that you and I can be is resting confidently in his care for us, whatever may come. That is the life of faith. Let's pray. Father, this is um, difficult truth because it touches us, Lord, uh, at, a, at a point and at nerves in us that, um, that are oftentimes difficult to bear. And yet you have called us in your word to trust you and to be thankful for your activity in our lives. And you have promised us, Lord, a precious thing, and that is peace, a peace that comes from being able to trust in you. So I pray, Lord... Uh, if this resonates with anyone in here this morning, that you would use this portion of Scripture, that they would just uh, chew on it and meditate on it this week, Lord. Bring about whatever conviction is necessary. Bring about the courage, Lord, within us to change. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.